This week, ESPN released a brand new documentary series uh, that highlights the 96 uh, Chicago Bulls and Michael Jordan and their last season together as a team. And in one of the first episodes, what they're talking about and interviewing Jordan about is what was known as the traveling cocaine circus. And when the interviewer brought that up to Jordan, he kind of chuckled because he didn't know that's what the team was referred to at the time. But he shook his head and he said, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. He said, I remember as a rookie, the first year playing for the Bulls, I walked into one of the hotel rooms on the, on the road, and I looked to my left, and cocaine lines everywhere. I looked to my right, and marijuana and pot smokers everywhere, prostitutes, women, everything was in that room. And I immediately thought to myself, oh man, if the cops show up or if this place gets raided, I'm just as guilty as everybody else, even though I haven't participated in anything. And so he walked away. And he said from that moment on, he became a bit of a loner on the team. And the documentary does a great job of then going to a montage of videos that shows Jordan all alone at practice, or he's, he's cleaning up in his apartment, doing things that a rookie might not normally do. And all of this actually added to the mystique around Jordan that he only cared about winning or he only cared about championships. Where I read this article, one of the writers says, uh, whatever Jordan decided to do in those early years must have worked because he led the team to 14 playoff appearances and six national championships. Now, I don't share that story with you because Michael Jordan is our moral role model. I share that story with you because if it's true, his actions underline a foundational principle of our new series, Unbalanced. And that is that when you are devoted to a mission, when you're devoted to a goal, or a purpose, or in our case, a person, you will often do things that other people aren't willing to do. You will give up something good now for something greater later, like we talked about last week. And when it's for Jesus, when it's in the terms of Jesus, that's called faith. It's believing that what God has for you in the future is so much better than those temporary uh, moments of happiness that we might experience now. So we give up good things for something greater Later. And that's what it means to be unbalanced because as the world sees us make those sacrifices, they'll think, man, that's crazy. Why would you live like that? That's unbalanced. And if you missed week one, I would encourage you to go back and watch it so you can get a better understanding of what Jesus is calling us into when we decide to place our faith in him and follow him. But today we're going to continue by getting a little bit more specific on what it means to get unbalanced by looking at another story of Jesus. See, Jesus had entered Jerusalem and he was received with a great party. Everybody was excited to see him. They thought he was this uh, wonderful person who was coming in to teach them and, and help them and do miracles. And everything was going good for a while. And then, well, things took a turn for the worse. As Jesus starts to teach, he begins to indict and cast judgment on some of the religious leaders and the Pharisees, and, and they try to trap him and accuse him and, and get him in all kinds of trouble. And so there's this tension that keeps building up in this moment of Jesus's life. And it all boils down to one big moment in Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 38. It says, Jesus also taught, beware of these teachers of religious law. For they like to parade around in flowing robes and receive respectful greetings as they walk in the marketplaces and how they love the seats of honor in the synagogues and the head table at banquets. Yet they shamelessly cheat widows out of their property and then pretend to be pious by making long prayers in public. Because of this, they will be more severely punished. 
I mean, can you imagine this story? Can you imagine these Pharisees standing here, hearing Jesus indict them and cast judgment on them right in front of their faces? See, the bottom line is when it comes to the Pharisees, they were not good people. They were corrupt. They would often do things to seem more holy than they really were. They would oppress widows. They designed a system that thrived and lived off oppressing these widows so that their pockets could get lined, so that they could get rich and have more wealth. They prayed on the weak and lowly. They used religion and their belief in God to get ahead and boost their status in life. And before we judge them too harshly, let's just admit that sometimes you and I might be similar and we might operate with a similar attitude. Sure, we're probably not oppressing widows or stealing from widows, but man, do we use religion to sometimes get ahead in life? It's been years since we've talked to God, but when we want the promotion or the raise, well, we'll finally talk to him in hopes that he gives us what we want. And we don't want to be seen as a gossip, but we want other people to know somebody else's business. So, so we come to church or we come to the group and we're like, did you see what Sally's been doing? She's been doing this, this, and this. She is not living for the Lord. We need to pray for her. And you make sure you cover yourself by adding that little prayer request, but you're really just airing out her dirty laundry to somebody else. Or we bury saints in our yards in hopes that the house sells. We give things to get things. We give things to make ourselves feel good and look good. I know I've done all of those things. I know I've been guilty of using religion to boost my status and get ahead. We may not be oppressing or stealing from widows, but we definitely say things to appear more holy than what's actually going on in the inside of our hearts. And Jesus is opposed to such action. Jesus is opposed to us building our own kingdom instead of focusing on building and expanding his kingdom. And so Jesus indicts these Pharisees. He indicts these religious leaders because it is totally counter to the way of God. And then we move on to another story, picking up right where we left off in verse 41. Jesus sat down near the collection box in the temple and he watched as the crowds dropped in their money and many rich people put in large amounts. And then a poor widow came and dropped in two small coins. The placement of this story is important. Jesus goes from indicting and casting judgment on these religious leaders who were oppressing this widow. And now he's focused on this widow who walks into the temple and drops in two little coins into the offering plate. I read one writer who believes based on some other ancient documents that when people would come to the temple to give, they would often announce what it was they were giving. Now imagine what this would be like today. You walk to the offering box in the back of our auditorium and you say $500 as you drop your check in or $1,000 or $10,000 as you drop your check in. And if you're a one upper, this is your dream because as somebody gives $10,000, you can then announce $10,001 so that everybody knows how holy and great you are. So these people, they're audibly announcing their big donations and Jesus is watching it all. And this little old lady walks up to the offering plate and she doesn't have to say a thing because as she drops in her two little coins, everybody would have known that she gave nothing. They would have known right away that that was a a measly little gift. But Jesus would have known that she gave everything. 
In fact, that's what Jesus is going to teach us because he seizes the moment. He calls his disciples to him and he flips the way of the world on its head. Once again, here's how he finishes this story. Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I tell you the truth. This poor widow has given more than all the others who are making contributions for they gave a tiny part of their surplus, but she poor as she is, has given everything that she had to live on. Now, wait a second, Jesus, that that doesn't seem right. Jesus, I think you've been in isolation too long. I think you're losing your mind. How in the world, Jesus, could you hear those two little pennies hit the offering plate and say that this woman has given more than all of those people who were dropping in hundreds and thousands of dollars? How in the world is this possible that her offering could have been more than those who were giving tons? Look, Jesus honored this woman because she withheld nothing from God. She brought those two coins and she didn't leave with one. She put them both in the offering. Everything she was, everything she owned, every possession she had, every penny she had was for God. God had full access, full reign, full authority over everything she was. And that's what she's demonstrating as she drops those two pennies in the plate that everything she had was for God because she knew something very important that we need to learn when it comes to following God. And that is that the sum of your heart, the sum of your heart is greater than some of your possessions. The sum, the totality of your heart is greater than some of your possessions. Look, I find this story incredible. She gave everything she had, her, her livelihood, her, her life, her, her bread for that day probably went into that offering plate. She gave everything she had because she knew that the sum was better than some. Her generosity is unbalanced. The way that she sacrifices and gives to God. A friend of mine, when reflecting on this story, says this. He says, Jesus is setting up a new method of evaluating and measuring our generosity. Here he is saying, your generosity is not based upon how much you give, but it's based upon how much you have left over after you give. The giving of the rich had absolutely no impact on their lifestyles whatsoever. It was an entirely surplus wealth, but the widow's giving immediately affected her current lifestyle that very day. In other words, he says, it's not about what comes out of the wallet. It's about what stays in the wallet. And I don't know about you, but there are a lot of things that stay in our wallets these days. We hold back money and we keep it in our wallets because we want to have the second or the third vacation home down on the Cape, or we got to have that brand new boat or the luxurious car because the other one wasn't getting us from point A to point B very good. Or we got to take that third family vacation and we got to make sure that we're secure and that we have uh, status and access to the social circles that we want. And we got to hold on to that money so that we can continue to exercise our power over over people. Look, things that stay in your wallet is anything that prevents you from fully following Jesus. Things that stay in your wallet are things that actually uh, force you to decrease your generosity so that you can have the extra things in life. And understand me, I'm not saying that you shouldn't have nice things in life, but I do want you to take an inventory of your life, an inventory of your wallet and say, what am I not giving up and how am I cutting my generosity because of it? How often do we not, do we cut our generosity because of the extra things we want in life? Moment of honesty for you. You want to know what's in my wallet? You want to know what often affects my generosity? Food. I love food. 
I love going out to eat. I love everything about sitting down at a table and, and ordering uh, food and appetizers. I love food. I love that right now, Buffalo Wild Wings on Tuesdays and Thursdays is buy one, get one free. And before you say Buffalo Wild Wings is gross, you're wrong. Look, I can get 30 wings for $20 delivered to my house for free and eat them on my couch while watching Netflix. It's a slice of heaven and I absolutely love it. But when I get, begin to do that two, three, four times a week, gets a bit much, and I'm actually cutting into generosity funds that I could do something else with. Do you know how much money I have wasted over the years just to satisfy my tummy? I've spent money I don't have on food I don't need because a turkey sandwich just didn't sound good that night. Another moment of honesty, you want to hear about my religious elitism? I justify my love for food and eating out as well. Before coronavirus, I would say, well, I'll just invite somebody with me. I'll buy their meal and I can tell myself, man, I'm so generous. I bought their burger and, and life is good. But I don't care about being generous to them. I just want an excuse to go out for the third time and not feel bad about doing it. And now that we're in the middle of coronavirus, every time I order out, well, I'm a local hero supporting local business. And that's how I justify things so that I can spend more money on food and cut back on my generosity. But that's not why I'm doing it. I'm buying that extra food because I feel for some reason I need it because I feel like it's status or it makes me important to be able to go out to eat and have these nice things. And over the years, my desire to eat out, my desire for food has impacted my generosity because I got to make sure that I have enough money for wings and burgers later that week. Look, if you're going to follow Jesus, you got to be willing to give up everything you got to be willing to impact and affect your daily lifestyle, your desires, your wants, your luxuries, the boat, the car, the house, the vacations, everything, and especially our money. Nothing is off limits for Jesus. And Jesus honors this woman because her daily schedule, her daily routine was immediately impacted by what she gave. She sacrificed everything because she knew that the sum of your heart is greater than some of your possessions. And understand me, I realize what I'm asking, or, or rather what Jesus is asking, is a big ask. It's a big thing for us to sacrifice and give like that. But did you know, and here's why it's such a big thing, because the average American only gives about 2% of their yearly income. 2%. Do you know how small that is? 2%. You can't even feel that. Think about it this way. If I take a test and I score a 98%, I'm pretty daggun happy because that means I missed one true or false question. Like a 98%, that's great. I'm still going to get an A. But if I take a test and I score an 85 or a 90, I'm going to feel that. It's going to affect my GPA. It's going to affect my grades. And when it comes to generosity, we need to feel it. It needs to hurt a little bit. We need to know that, yes, we're sacrificing this. From, we're not giving from our surplus. We're giving everything to Jesus. And understand, Jesus isn't asking us to do something that he hasn't already done himself. In fact, if you read through the New Testament and you read through the letters where people are asking for money in churches, every call to generosity, every call for finances is rooted in the generosity of Jesus. Because when your leader who is rich becomes poor, you then realize that you can do the same thing. That even though you may be rich on earth, you can become poor for the sake of others. In fact, one writer, while reflecting on this in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, he says this. Here's how he roots his generosity plea. You know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty he could make you rich. Look, 
Jesus had infinite wealth, infinite wealth in heaven. And he gave it all up and he came to die so that you didn't have to die. Jesus gave up everything, all of his wealth. He became poor. He died poor so that we didn't have to. And so that we could live. See this call to be unbalanced in the eyes of of the world. It's not some ethical precept to live the good life. This is a call to respond to the good news of what Jesus has done for you on the cross. This is a call to respond to the generous love of Christ. I love what Tim Keller says when he says, Jesus gave up his treasure to make you his treasure. That's what this is all about. We're responding to the generosity of Jesus. And when we see that he gave up everything, when we see that he died for us so that we may live, when we see that he resurrected victoriously over the grave so that one day we too may experience resurrection life. When we see that and we surrender to him and we give him the sum of our heart, then money ceases to be the currency of our heart. And you begin to bless others and you begin to sacrifice so that others may experience that same kind of generous love of Jesus. But it only happens when you surrender. It only happens when you give him the sum of your heart. So how do we do it? Let me just suggest three uh, quick applications that you can begin uh, pursuing so that you can pursue this life of surrender, this life of giving the sum of your heart to Jesus. Number one, I would tell you to prioritize generosity prioritize it. You got to think about it. You got to be intentional about it. Ask yourself these questions. When the paycheck hits, do you give first or do you give last? If you want to prioritize generosity, you give first. One of the things that Bailey and I try to do every month, sometimes we're good at it. Sometimes we're not. We try to make our giving our second highest expense. The only reason it's number two is because we live in Massachusetts and the housing around here is ridiculous. Ridiculous. So we try to make giving one of our highest expenses. You have to plan for that. I know other people who try to increase their giving 1% each year. That's the goal that they set. You have to plan for that. You have to prioritize generosity to make a, a movement like that. So prioritize generosity. Number two, I would tell you to plan for everyday generosity. Look, if you have every dollar designated for what you need and what you want, when your neighbor comes up to you or your friend comes up to you with a need, You're not going to have any left over to give to them. I would encourage you to begin setting aside 50, 60, a hundred dollars a month, whatever you can spare so that you can practice everyday generosity so that when you see a need, you can meet that need. You got to, you got to be intentional. You prioritize it, you plan for it. And number three, I would tell you to partner with us in our generosity. We say all the time that we want to lift up and love our community and our neighbors and our friends. And if you have a friend who has a need right now, especially with the coronavirus and all the financial strain that we're feeling, and you can't fully meet that need, let us know. We've got the funds or we'll find the funds so that we can help you help your friends. And if you got a stimulus check that's coming in and you don't necessarily need it, man, would you consider partnering with us and giving to our benevolence fund so that we can continue to help people financially as the hard times are coming? Look, generosity isn't just going to happen. It takes intentionality and full surrender. It takes giving God the sum of your heart. And just like the widow, we must learn to trust God with everything, to trust him with the sum of our heart. Look, I know maybe I got in your business today and I I hit on money uh, pretty hard, but this call to give God the sum of your heart extends to every area of life. It's not just your money. This week I came across a story uh, uh, from Nashville, Tennessee. And in 1918, uh, the world was not much different than it is today. 
see, in September of 1918, uh, Nashville had its first case of the Spanish flu. And two months later, in November 1918, 1,300 people, 1% of Nashville's population had died from the Spanish flu. As the Spanish flu went out across the United States, over 700,000 Americans would die and it would kill over 50 million people worldwide. And in Nashville, in this story, as the state asked churches to close their doors and businesses and theaters and schools, much like we're seeing today, most everyone complied except for a few churches. You see, there were a couple churches who kept their doors open because they partnered with the Red Cross and they became hospitals for the sick. And the people who attended and were members of those churches, they gave all of their finances, they gave all of their time, and they risked their life to go help the sick, to go help the poor who could not afford medical care in a hospital. That's radical. That's unbalanced. And throughout history, the people of God have rallied in times of crisis because they know that God who, became, who was rich became poor so that the world may live. And a response like that to the watching world will seem unbalanced. To give above and beyond is unbalanced. To serve at the risk of your life is unbalanced. To live a generous life is unbalanced. To give God, to give a person the sum of your heart is unbalanced. But it's exactly what the world needs to see right now. Father God, This call to generosity, this call to abandon everything, to sacrifice everything, to give you control and authority over every part of our life, especially our finances, is not so that we can obtain anything. It's not to to buy our way into heaven. It's not to buy our salvation. God, this is a response to your generous love. This is a response to what you've done on the cross. It is a response to the fact that though you had infinite wealth, you gave it all up. And you came to the cross and you died as poor as possible so that we didn't have to. God, you gave up your treasure to make us our treasure. And the best way we can respond is to give you the sum of our heart, to give you everything that we are, everything that we have, everything that we want or desire or need. God, we give that to you. We sacrifice everything to follow you because you are a God worth following. You are a God who loves us. And we are forever thankful. Jesus, help us to live unbalanced to the world, to live with abandon and to sacrifice everything for the cause of Christ because he's worth it. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.